You're listening to the Verse Podcast. Given that your book, Sheila, is about your life in the 70s and how your political consciousness grew and developed during that time, I thought a kind of interesting place to start would be to kind of talk about how and where we feel our our formative years, what they what they did to us, how they kind of shaped our um, uh, our politics. I mean, I was born in 1969. In well, I was born in Hitchin, but raised in Stevenage, this new town. Single parent mum from the age of one, and so I grew up with a kind of almost imbibed with mother's milk, really, a sense of anti-colonialism, anti-racism, and a kind of class politics. So I was kind of never in any confusion about who my team was, you know. Even if growing up around a lot of white working class people in the 70s, that involved an awful lot of racism from the people who I looked to as being somehow in solidarity with. Hmm. And... um, uh, and my mum had this thing about your people, who my people were. So we, I remember when the Holocaust miniseries came on in 1979-78. And she made me, she actually made me wake up and watch it. And she said, these are your people too. Um, and uh, I remember her being very supportive of the... Um, f- a firefighter's strike, which would have been in the mid-70s. 77? There you go. I would have been about eight. But I remember her saying, like, we we should support these people. And we didn't have an awful lot of money, but I remember her giving me money to put in a bucket or, um, um, you know, on (laughs) that basis. And then came 1979 and Thatcher and the beginning of a kind of range of defeats. I was 10, and so I was inculcated, first of all, with that from my mum, but secondly, with this sense of, in a very working-class town that voted for Thatcher every time, so I could see that it had some purchase, but with a sense of continual defeat, which was bookended by 1989, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the notion that any notion of socialism is over. Socialism is about the past. It can't work. It won't work. Um, So that was my kind of formative, kind of formative years. How about about you? Well, I was born in 1943, and uh, as I was... um, Growing up, first I was in an area of Leeds called Harold's. And when I was seven, my parents moved to uh, um, another part of Leeds, which was more genteel, called Roundhay. The reason that people were moving was because there were rumours that black people were coming to live in (laughs) Harold's. And I had no idea what that meant. In fact, people said, the blacks are coming. And my parents were friendly with people called the blacks who were people they'd lodged with before they could <laughs> afford a house. So why was it 
why was it that that people were so worried as the blacks were meant to be good you know they were people who my parents knew and were friendly with so why were they so worried and I, I think it was trying to put things together that didn't make any sense and the thing that really didn't make sense either was class because my mother indicated to me when I was really small that the little girl next door was not as good as me because her father was a lorry driver which made no sense because my father sold pit motors he drove a car and to me I thought well the lorry this father who drives a lorry must be better because it's bigger (laughs) I couldn't work anything out about either class or race and then when I was about 10 um uh there was a friend of mine whose father was a Polish Jewish um, exile after the war, and he'd started a button factory in uh, India. And he employed um, a man called Ram who came to back to England with him. And Ram used to look after me and Janina, and we were horrible little girls. You and Janina. Who's that? She's the daughter of the um, the family. Right. Uh, the, the, the Ram's daughter. Yeah. Her father was the Polish-Jewish mm. guy and her mother was English-Jewish. Right. Um, uh, Ram was the kindest man that you could possibly imagine and we were very badly behaved. <laughs> and he came to say goodbye when I was 10 because he was going back to India. And I really just thought he was I just loved him and I just hugged him and my father was absolutely furious because my father had worked as an engineer in India and had all these ideas about you know race and Britain and the empire and I knew Ram was a good person and I couldn't make any sense of this and my mother explained to me my father had these kind of ideas and I think that that was another thing that made no sense. So I started to question pretty well everything my father said. And what made you question it, given that you could have just gone along with it? I mean, I went along with what my mum said. And yeah. would but later... you didn't have experience to put against it, did you? I, I knew that Ram was not... Mm. He was a, a wonderful person. I, as a child, I felt. So... Why Why was my father being so horrible to him? Right. Others wouldn't didn't question it, though, did they? Others had similarly, could have been similarly confused. Yeah. Um, it's really hard, isn't it? Because if you think of any one instance, I think it, I mean, I just think there must be a series of chances in people's lives, almost, of who they bump into. Mm. And it wasn't until I went to university that I formulated my general rebellion into any kind of left politics. I mean, I don't know about you, I was from the first generation, um, I think, I mean, my brother went to university, but certainly my mum didn't go to university, it was not part of her experience. Um, but she was determined that I would, which was a class cleavage of sorts. You know, I would be leaving Stevenage. There was a sense that I wouldn't... 
did your parents go to university? What? How? How do we sell your going to university into your kind of consciousness? It was a complete break. My uh, my mother. I think my mother had educational. You know, she she would have liked some kind of education, but she met my father when she was young. Um, and it turned out my father was already married and they ran away to India without being married, which um, I never discovered until after they died because this was the thing that nobody could say. Um, and um, she, she did, when she was India, in India, got, she got interested through a man who had been in the army about Indian... Um, culture and art so she did have all these feelings and she loved finding out about people she loved stories she used to tell imagine stories about people that we saw and um so she and she was a kind of tory anarchist with <laughs> a, a, a an alliance of women in the in the household. Whoever, anyone who came, which was my father, was pretty isolated, really. Or I don't think he realised it. I thought he, I think he thought he ruled supreme. But I read only things like the I read Daily, uh, the Sunday Express, Daily Mail, News of the World, Yorkshire Post. So I, I it was uh, school where I had a liberal history teacher and university that transformed how I saw the world. And I think I, I'd already decided there were people who talked about books and were interested in ideas, and I wanted to find those people. Mm. I mean, I um, my journey took a weird <coughs> shift because I... I did French at night school from the age of 13, actually. You couldn't do... The options at my school meant you couldn't do languages and sciences all at the same time. and So I did French at night school. And I had this wonderful teacher called Pierre. And I remember saying to him, so how much do I have to... What do I have to do? What homework do I have to do? And him saying, you can do nothing. I know, it's night school. You don't, you don't have to be here. And I spent the first few weeks thinking, that is awesome, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> and then there was a realisation that kind of, well, then why are you here? What's the... And that could have gone either way, but what it did was kind of really... Uh, and my mum was... My mum was a teacher. She started as a nurse and then she became a teacher. And... She she understood education as being like look this is your this is your chance this 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 country offers this take care and it's important and um, uh, and I became very not nerdy because I played a lot of football I was quite raucous kid I played a lot of sport but this light went on that like oh you can learning like you can own it it can be yours and then I was kind of off to the races really to the extent that my mum a few times was like you should settle down get, get out more and um, um, 
So I was kind of very self-motivated by the time I got to university, but my understanding of education was incredibly utilitarian. It was to get exams and go to university and get, and pass this thing. But something else happened to me at 14, 15, 15 really. I went on a demonstration with my mum against P.W. Bota coming to Britain. Uh, bought a paper from the young socialists, I had no idea who they were, wrote to them, said I wanted to join. And I ended up being the youth wing of the WRP. So I ended up in this completely quite eccentric group of Trotskyists. And I was there for about a year before I left, stroke, got kicked out. And it was during the miners' strike. And so I was... Um, I was with them, I was going to pickets, I was I was having the time of my life actually, it was wonderful. Uh, whopping had happened around that time, I think maybe slightly earlier. It was a very intense political education, quite eccentric like I say. And it did a couple of things. One was it kind of took the mystique out of the notion of being revolutionary completely out of my mind because I saw these people and they were quite odd, some of them. <laughs> but, um, but secondly, to be involved in the minor strike and to experience that defeat at that level. Yeah. So it was a very intense political education that ended with a very, very tough lesson and was the beginning of a series of kind of defeats and declines. And I remember describing, because older comrades would talk about, you know, the upturn, there'll be an upturn. And I thought it was like waiting for Godot, you know, it just would never come. There would be this upturn. But um, I never saw it all the way through my uh, uh, f formative years. But that was, that was happenstance. But that I took, by the time I went to university, I was already <laughs> kind of ex-Trotskyist by that time. I joined the Labour Party because I thought it was the easiest thing to get out of. But um, um, I, and was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. But I had a sense of myself as a political being and the place that I went to university Harriet Watt was a lot like Stevenage actually it was a very it was a vocational university quite utilitarian quite right wing it wasn't in the National Union of Students so I sort of sought people outside of uh, of there but what, what was your university experience like what how was it transformative well, the first experience was it was a shock because even coming from a, a middle-class background in Leeds, it was a, a completely different. When I, I went to um, Oxford for an interview, and uh, I was, it was just very strange. And I, I got in, and I always thought I got in out of a kind of mistake, really, because <laughs> I. I answered a question wrongly. I, it was um, age of faith or age of reason, discuss. And you were only meant to do one or the other because people only did modern history or medieval history. Mm. And I uh, read a, a kind of crib about the Renaissance, not been the first time that you have humanism. Mm. I 
so I did both, <laughs> discussed both questions. And uh, it happened that the medieval uh, te historian teacher there, Beryl Smalley, had written on medieval humanism, showing that ideas about reason and um, questioning um, authority were there in the Middle Ages. <laughs> so she was delighted. And I got in, and I always thought, I think I sort of got in wrongly because you weren't meant to answer the wrong question. <laughs> and what, so that would have been in the early 60s? Yes, it was in 1961. And what, so that's kind of, I mean, I'm thinking of what I know of 1961. Freedom Riders. Yes. Um, uh, in America and... Um, we saw the civil rights uh, people being attacked by dogs yeah. on the television. And uh, that was so shocking. I'd never seen anything like that. So there was, was, was anti-apartheid mm. struggles going on. And, um, but also Hungary had happened five years earlier. Yes. So the Soviet yes. Union was not... The Labour Club people, I thought they seemed a bit sort of ambitious and career-ish so I very obstinately went to the communist club and it was about five people and and that was the when I, I only went about twice and I, that was where I met Tariq Ali the first time and he was a new boy but that was in my second year. But that after. must have been extraordinarily transgressive to get I mean communism in I mean that it's almost <laughs> like going to the jihad club. I the, know I know and then and I remember we uh, a man came who was the editor of the um, um, uh, Daily Worker to speak in Oxford, and uh, I heard this really strange noise at the back of the meeting, like a kind of howling. <laughs> and Bob Rothorn, who was my boyfriend at the time, who really introduced me to socialist ideas, he said, "That's the trots." So I connected Trotsky's with a kind of howling. So I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll try these communists, because the man who was speaking didn't seem so fierce. <laughs> um, but uh, I, it was a bit boring, the communist club, and I gave, I gave it up after two goes. But I did meet Tariq Ali there. Um, were you there when Malcolm X came? No, I just 64. left. I just left. Right. My friend... Uh, Judith Oakley, who had raised the question of women joining the Students' Union, because we weren't allowed as women to be members of the Students' Union. Wow. We were taken as guests <laughs> by men. It was completely ludicrous. She did win this campaign. There was really only her, and I was a bit of a sort of rhubarb, rhubarb person. Because <laughs> I thought it seemed a very boring place, actually. I, I, didn't, um, I didn't really ever take to political meetings. And after about 40 years of them, I, now I, I dread political meetings. But I, my life became meetings. Um, right. I first went to, the, to Hackney... Young Socialists, because I did the opposite to you. I saw a demonstration of people who were all marching with great big banners, and um, and they seemed really sort of lively. And they they were the Socialist Labour League Trotskyists, right. 
And so I, and they said, you should join the Young Socialists Club. So I thought, oh, well, that's, yes, I will. So I went to the Labour Party <laughs> and joined the Young Socialists. <laughs> so, so you leave Oxford <laughs> and move to Hackney? I moved to Hackney because Bob needed to be near Liverpool Street Station in order right. to get to Cambridge. And um, so I went to live in Hackney and stayed there for about 31 years. In Montague Road? First in a flat opposite Hackney Down. Right. And then in uh, Montague Road. Which it turns out is just around the corner from where I live now. Yes. Um, so you went to Hackney and you got involved politically in Hackney in the Labour Party through the Young Socialists, but I'm assuming kind of campaigns and things yes we tried to campaign <coughs> for lower rent and private renting there was te- uh, horrific conditions and that was very noticeable that although everybody had bad conditions the people from the Caribbean were living in um, places which were so damp that uh, there were great sheets of the wallpaper coming off the wall and there would be uh, one uh, stove in the in the in the hall mm-hmm. for lots of people who were living in all the different rooms, and whole families were living in a room. And um, but we never could get a <laughs> private rent tenants campaign going. No. Why not? I think the tenants there were tenants campaigns were strong on the council estates at that time, and the tenants had very militant demonstrations mm. in the 60s but the private the private renting was hard because people were so divided and um they didn't you know they couldn't get together well that kind of brings us up to the beginning of the book right because your book daring to hope is about your life in the 70s and i, I guess uh i'm interested because you and I have a similar, um, while our backgrounds are dissimilar, um, a similar kind of um, mode of intervention into these things, which is kind of memoir and biography quite often as politics or as kind of, when it comes to documenting, is to kind of reflect on how and where we were in these, how we understand these moments now, how we, I mean, how we understand our life in these moments, and um, uh, and that was kind of true of Promise of a Dream in a in a different way. So I'm wondering what what led you to this book, in particular. What was there about your life in the seventies that you want to to share, and what? the title daring to hope because your book starts where my life starts um um not that you would have known that at the time (laughs) but um uh and why what daring to hope what that kind of uh embodies really i think that title it took a while to get a title for the book i did the book before i had a title um and the title came about because i realized at that time, there was that energy and hope. 
which came because of the circumstances of the time. There were all the anti-colonial struggles. There was um, a working class that was well organised and had seen um, conditions improve and therefore had the confidence to feel that they could get better. And there was a lot of young women like me who were really uneasy because we 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 didn't fit into the circumstances that our mothers had lived in mm. on the other hand um when we entered all kinds of different aspects of the male world we were treated in in ways that were really confusing and i i, I again i suppose it was something that didn't fit mm. and i started puzzling over why that was so uh, in the late 60s, I'd begun to think about myself as a woman. I mean, I didn't really... I mean, I knew I was a woman, um, but I didn't think very much in terms of that as a, as a social situation mm. at all, really, um, because it seemed that you could do quite a few things. I... I think I began to notice when I lived in Hackney the difficulties that women had when they had children. Uh, our neighbour upstairs had a little boy um, and she, her life was really restricted. Sometimes um, she used to just sit and look out of the window, because, she said, because she, she just felt so completely trapped she was in a flat upstairs when i lived in the in the in the flat i i don't think um there was a sense of being a woman in a political sense mm. in my existence before about the late 60s for you for me right yeah and um and we didn't have a, a language so when I started to write, it was about this silence that we lived in, in a silence because we couldn't articulate. And I was influenced a lot by the writing from um, black power writers because they were talking about how it felt, how you experienced yourself, mm. which normal um, left politics didn't really talk about. I mean, Marx didn't talk about how he felt did he no no i mean i really like reading marx but he he just didn't seem he wasn't to a big talk. sharer was he <laughs> no he didn't reveal these things <laughs> perhaps in his letters but then he was very grumpy in his letters yeah yeah i mean you know you can't do everything <laughs> no i mean i um i'm intrigued by a couple of aspects here um one is one is personal because well, let's start, actually. I'm, I'm intrigued by a couple of aspects here. And one is, because you, you talk in the book about meeting one of the older suffragettes. I can't remember her name. Uh, but she comes to a meeting. Yes, that's Marjorie Corbett Ashby, There you go, yeah. Who is a, a liberal constitutional suffragist. Yeah, suffragist, yeah. sorry. And that... Um, and what a shot in the arm that kind of gave you what a kind of what how good it was to see this I think you described silver head kind of uh, lady who kind of sort of sort you out sort you out and uh, and 
and had stuff to impart. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of suggests that there had been a language and that there was a kind of... This is one of the things I'm quite keen on at the moment, that there had been some kind of short-circuiting of the kind of intergenerational transmission that you found each other eventually. Yes. But that these languages are found and lost and then recreated and so on. Yes, and then I I started to read on the the history about Mm. women and revolution. Actually, I was not initially that bothered about the suffrage movement because they seemed a bit sort of reformist. Um, But I... And it wasn't until I met women who were also socialists who t- talked about how they combined the two mm. later. But the um, women I was really excited about were the women in the French Commune who'd been um, uh, participated in uh, barricades and mm. things. And then the women of 1848, particularly in France, who wrote extraordinarily personally about how they felt in relation to men in the revolutionary movement who treated them with, and dismissed them and were disdainful to them. So I, I could identify completely with these uh, early 19th century women, the 1830s and 1848s in France. And then on to... Because when I first came in contact with you as you know now, because I've told you many times. When I left school, I worked in a refugee school in Sudan. Uh, It was run by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And they had this library with stuff in it. (laughs) Um, Just whatever books were donated. And I came across Women, Resistance and Revolution by you. And it converted me at the age of 17 to feminism <laughs> I wasn't against feminism before but most of the femi- the feminists that I had met mostly struck me as very middle class women who wanted to posit their gender against my race as though I were some kind of problem and that they uh, because I was a man and that without locating that problem, whatever it was, within the context of class and race and other things, and that your book gave me a sense of what um, feminism could be, what feminism might be, in terms of having a class analysis and a racial analysis and a kind of more holistic... Uh, which I just hadn't been introduced to before. I was 17. Um, And I might be misremembering, but I I have a sense of you kind of also talking about Alexandra Kollontai from uh, the Russian Revolution, Vera Zazulich maybe, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, but the other kind of sort of filling out a story for me that I had only sort of somewhat partial knowledge of and saying, look, that, you know, First of all, there were women here too. Secondly, this is what the women thought about what was going on. And thirdly, this is what the women thought about the men and what they were doing. And then, which gave me a lot of equipment. <laughs> um, um, when did you write um, I st- Women Resistance Revolution? I started writing it in 1969. The year I was born. Yeah, and then I... Um, uh, 
I mean, I, I wrote, I wrote it working for a doctor's. <laughs> I was working uh, in Bethnal Green. Was that the one where the Doctor Liebson IS people used to call you? Uh-huh. They had kind of ailments and say, well, 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 I've got this. <laughs> that was um, my boyfriend in the, in the, from 1970 was David Widgery, and he was a medical student, and he was right. in International Socialist. Okay. So, yes, the, everybody did ring him about their ailments, and I <laughs> used to answer the phone because he would be at medical school. <laughs> um, so you started in 69, and when was it published? Um, 72. Um, how did that fit into your experience of the 70s? It, well, that was a bit of a shock, actually, because when I wrote it, there were not that many books and certainly not many connecting the idea of the liberation of women to the left and socialism. Mm. I So I became somebody who became rather notorious <laughs> And, um, notorious or notable? <laughs> well, I might have been notable to some, but um, mainly notorious. I mean, women's liberation were, was seen as um, a rather strange and um, often kind of... They, they, they tried to sneer at us originally, and then mm. gradually um, quite a few women in the media started to relate more to the ideas of women's liberation and then we got much better press but uh, I, I was um, sig- signalled out quite a lot and that was quite complicated because in women's liberation we were really determined not to have individual figures and mm. leaders who um, would be pushed by the media as our you know spokespeople, spokespeople. yeah yeah we really but it was very difficult because if nobody spoke, then, you know, there was just no information. So mm. eventually um, people did start writing and talking, but I was a bit, I was a bit early on as, as somebody from the left. There, there, were, there were people who were not opposed to the left, but they didn't connect it mm. so much. Um, the 70s is commonly kind of described as this kind of, lost decade if you if you outside of the left you know if one thinks of the recent shortages um queues at petrol pumps yeah like back to the 70s you know or labor going back to the 70s or it's almost like this um these dark this dark ages there were the 60s and kind of whatever we think of the 60s, Flower Power and the Beatles and kind of a a range of things that one can connect to the 60s, which one might like or not like, but there was at least some debate about what was good and what was bad about it. And then there's the 80s and Thatcherism and yuppies and, and there's a debate about what was good and what was bad about that. But then there's the 70s and there was a kind of almost uniform consensus in the mainstream that the 70s was a bad time for England. Two-day week, strikes everywhere, kind of nothing was working, winter of rubbish discontent. Not, rubbish not collected. Yes. I mean... Yeah. Um, it did get very smelly, actually, <laughs> in Hackney. Oh, dear. I mean, how would you characterise the 70s? 
Because there is a different story, right, of wages going up. and We were hopeful in the first part of the 70s um, that there really could be significant change. I think there was a sort of sobering up after the um, more kind of mystical, ecstatic visions of the, of the 60s and a feeling that you had to really get down to changing the lives, everyday life, circumstances of people around and the, as I said, the, there were still these terrible housing conditions. And um, I was teaching in a school in uh, Islington. And the, there was real hope that um, comprehensive schools could really be made somewhere that was an exciting, good place to teach. So there were a lot of people from different vantage points who were trying to change society. And there had been movements through the 60s of people um, squatting, and that extended in in the 70s. People were creating whole community festivals and things in Brixton. I was uh, in Hackney, and we were a bit more traditional left in in Hackney. But the uh, there were demonstrations of um, members of Nalgo who were the local government people and social workers. And in in Islington, the social workers were kind of doing barricades and things <laughs> in strikes. So there was a, a cut right through from the working class to the people who were called white-collar workers and middle-class jobs were really arguing and defending their position as workers and were saying we need to change society as well. So it it was a very hopeful time in the first part. It got less hopeful in the late 70s, it's true. But I had uh, my son in 1977, and so uh, I I got really interested in all the struggles around childcare. And um, again, we were uh, creating community nurseries, which got some funding from local councils, which provided a really great place for for little kids to go and they were not very expensive um to you know we paid something but we didn't have to pay that much but they got some money first they were, it, the nursery will went to was a squat and then it got money from the council and it was a, a wonderful place for the, for the children to go so when you think of you know, it's daring to hope my life in the 70s. The daring to hope came from the early 70s, mostly, it sounds like. That was when yes. the really hopeful yes. period was. But, but we you... didn't stop. I mean, I think I began to get a bit seriously unhopeful by the late 80s. <laughs> <laughs> we were still, there were still all these um, things going on. In the 80s, there's miners and um, the seafarers strike. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a lot of resistance. Um, but when we think of your life in the 70s, which is what the book is about, towards the end you have a child. I'm just wondering if you can um, give us a sense. Some of the people watching this won't have read your book. Most people probably given when it's going out, of the journey that you went through during that decade? I 
I was um, working in a in a very sort of hand to mouth way, really, because I was part time doing lots of different part time teaching in further education and in um, my um, uh, the school I taught in. I taught I taught in further education, but I couldn't do that anymore. Actually, I, I was sort of blacklisted from further education because um, in the 60s uh, I formed a group with the students to discuss left ideas and that was, that was, that was I managed to get the engineering students and the hairdressers together which was a major <laughs> solidarity yes, yes so I um, I was always a bit worried about money mm. but I, I managed, and I lived in a communal um, house, which uh, was a house that I owned, but we didn't have rent. We all paid equally towards its maintenance. And um, I had I I had a will um, in in 1977 with um, his, Paul, who was was a squatter in Brixton. Um, and um, given given your politics, the decision to have a child was that a complicated decision on a personal level, or um, no, it wasn't really. Um, it's I guess all women start to get a bit bothered by the time. Well, at that time, I was thirty four when I actually had Will, and. At that time, that was seen as very, very old um, I, to have a kid. Not not by the more um, modern sort of medical people, but other people. So what are you hoping, someone picking up this book, what, what are you hoping that they will kind of get from it, understand from it? Well, I, I'm very conscious that although there are archives about women's liberation and there have been academic books written by younger academics about women's liberation from different aspects, there's not that much written by um, people who participated in it, strangely. Um, I think partly because it's complicated to, to go over a movement that you were passionately involved in. Um because by the end there were splits and divisions and it was that was very painful and um i think that people shied away from going into it and then also as women's liberation movement died down we we carried on being feminists and in my case a socialist feminist through you know the 80s and 90s but um there wasn't actually a movement in the sense that there had been in the 70s. Um, I, so I, I hoped to, to write something that would introduce people to how it felt mm. to be in such a movement and also to bring in some of the people who I had been close to, who um, many of whom I don't think a lot of people would have come across because they didn't write books. I mean, it's a, a peculiar thing to do to be a writer, so your name gets known. Um, and I I feel it's a bit like 
your interest in people, really, that you go around exploring and finding out these people and writing about them as as you you're trying to work thing ideas out um, in conversation with them, and I. I was like that with a, a lot of people in my life. I, w- and I wanted to write about them too, including the older ones who were from earlier generations who had helped me and encouraged me, particularly uh, Dorothy and Edward Thompson, who uh, were from the generation who had um, gone through Hungary in, as com- members of the Communist Party and left um, and ha- tried to create a new left. And when I first met uh, Edward in the 60s, he had got this very strong feeling of failure because the new left was disintegrating. Um, And it didn't really mean that much to me because I hadn't been part of that conflict. I, I did also meet individuals who were in the Communist Party who were actually older and extremely kind people and I I found that difficult to work out how you could be in an organization that had clearly done very bad things but had these incredible dedicated people who'd spend their lives serving and helping other people I I found that hard to to work out really but it meant that I didn't ever join the communist party Mm. um but I didn't have that, um, it, it didn't have the personal meaning to me that it, it, it had to people who were older who'd actually been in it and left. So I'm wondering, you talked about silence and about this, this silence, and there weren't a word for it. And, um, but then we talked about you meeting this suffragist and that there there haven't been words for what you were doing necessarily but there had been a there had been a kind of consciousness that had not been lost but had been submerged or you know in some way waylaid I'm wondering how you see the transmission from your generation to younger feminists now and what stayed what's gone you know when you look at young feminists now how do you understand how do you understand them and what do you think there is in the book for 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 them I, I mean, I'm really glad there's interest again. But, the, I mean, feminism never quite goes. I guess it's like other radical things. It, it carried on. Um, and in younger generations of women did become feminists in the period of the ni- 90s and the 2000s. But it is a very long time since there's been this spirit and forming uh, groups and organizing. Um, and I, I really, I don't know what, I can't say what younger feminists would say. I guess it would be different anyway, but I, I, I hope that they f- find it interesting. And 
also realized that we weren't um, <laughs> we weren't some kind of model type um, people who lived in a completely abstract and <laughs> exemplary way. <laughs> because I think that's how people sometimes present feminists. And it's a very one-dimensional um, thing. You sort of cease to be a woman if you're a feminist, you know. I remember a, a guy at uh, a socialist meeting and um, a guy started to chat me up at the bar and some other guy said to him, you can't chat her up, she's Sheila Robotham. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, <laughs> what is this fate? <laughs> yeah, there goes my chance. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is your life in the 70s and it's called Daring to Hope. We're now in 2021. Do you still dare to hope? And if you do, what are you... What are you ho- hoping about? I'm assuming it will be something different to what you'd be hoping about in the 70s. I mean, an awful lot's happened mm. that you maybe would never have imagined, both for better and worse. Quite, I mean, aspects that we we didn't really think about so much have, have become much better. I think the things that have become much better for women have been the things that uh, around sexual identity for lesbian women, um, it's much less of a struggle, I think, to be able to express same-sex desire than it was in uh, the 1970. I, I think the things that have become um, better too have been the fact that there are so many more women visually in the public eye who are doing things that are, you know, doing sports commentary. That would have been unheard of to have women going on about football and things. Um, So there are things that were not really what was the only thing about women's liberation. We were talking about women doing all kinds of things and we were talking about... um, changes in sexuality but the things that I think have been the hardest to change are the economic and social position of women who are in the working class either white or black women because the the changes in capitalism meant that there are actually more people forced down into the low paid groups so women have come up with in terms of jobs with the ones who were able to go up through through capitalism to a certain level. So there are many more women like me who went to university. It was really unusual to go to, to university even in, in the early 60s for, for, for a woman. You t- People said, oh, teach a training college, go to teach a training college. Or nursing, I guess. Yeah. Um, or in Leeds, there was the thing called the Pudding School, where that? it was to learn domestic science. <laughs> so it was a, it's very peculiar to to go to to university, and exceedingly peculiar for me going to Oxford, even from a middle class background. Of of for, not so. If your parents had gone, then it wasn't so odd, but it was odd. 
And do you have a sense of connection now? A sense of connection, not necessarily an actual connection, but you, you see it and you connect with the younger feminists who would be... Uh, in 1970, you would have been 30, 20, 27, something like that. Yeah. So when you look at kind of young women of around that age now who are politically active, do you connect with them? Do you have a psychic connection? Do you think like, yes, I can, yes, I would be doing that or I wouldn't be doing that or kind of I can see where that comes from? Well, I haven't, because I retired, I've, I haven't been in contact with that many young women in their 20s. Um, but I, through already through doing this, I've been, been interviewed by several young women in their 20s, which has been really, really nice, actually, because from all different circumstances. The thing that um, I think it, it is just so hard still is, is when women have children, because it's, it, it's very strong emphasis on... Even, I mean, one woman said to me, well, the, her guy didn't actually earn more than her, but his job took him away from the home. And so because she was at home with the children, she was looking really looking after the children and doing her work, um, which was she said was actually higher paid than him. And that, that was really interesting to me because um, it, it suggested that... Uh, you know, the, 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 the kinds of things that we were going on about has become more acute, really. Thanks, Sheila. <laughs>